working our way through. Now, I've been formerly uh, involved in student ministry um, for probably 15 years, really right out of college, and uh, loved it. Um, but one of the, some people would ask me, like, why did you want to work with students? Why did you want to do student ministry? Um, and there was a time in my life, I grew up in a home that was a believing home. My mom and dad are, are Christians, and I grew up in an area where um, the school system wasn't that great, and um, my folks decided they wanted me to have a Christian education, so they uh, saved and kind of scrimped a little bit and uh, put me in a, a, a Christian school. Um, and so I was saturated. I mean, I think officially saturated with Bible and Christianity. My, my grandma and grandpa on both sides were believers. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if you can overdose on Christianity, but it was, um, it was, ev- it was everywhere, every part of my life. Um, you know, my friends went to my Christian school, and um, if they weren't at my school, they were at least at my church. And I had a bunch of old people that lived on my street in my neighborhood, so like I didn't have friends down the street. They were all associated different places, and and so um, as I grew up, and then as I graduated from that environment, um, and I went, went to college, um, and kind of maintained uh, connections and relationships with some of my Christian school friends, um, I saw a lot of them really start uh, nosediving and crashing, kind of personally, morally, spiritually. In their lives, and, and I remember thinking, what what the heck is going on? Because these were a bunch of kids that were, you know, up to eighteen were were pretty. I mean, they were good kids. Like I, I ran with a good group, you know. The, the the friends that I had, we were just good kids. You know, we don't we had a good time, but we weren't drinking. You know, we weren't doing whatever category you put in as this is the bad kids might do. However, you define that. Um, <clears throat> We went on mission trips, you know, super, we were all real involved in youth ministry, did all the retreats, you know, did the Bible studies, blah, 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 blah. Like, I don't remember my friends having filthy math, you know, stuff like that. And, and so as, as I got out of, out of high school, I started asking myself, what kind of, what happened, you know? And I started looking at certain people that are in certain environments where they can, ultimately really know all the right answers, um, but not get the gospel, not get God. And, and, and part of that, I think, can be incredibly dangerous because if you know all the right answers, um, but, but you don't get it, then I think that there can be a danger in really being self-deceived into believing that you are, in fact, a believer. Does that make sense? And so as I moved into the, the student ministry world, I really felt like God led my steps and brought me here to East Cooper, where the last 12 years I was in student ministry. And what I was seeing in the students here at East Cooper is really kind of the same thing. A bunch of kids, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th grade students who were brought up and raised in a good, healthy Christian environment, and they knew all the answers, but I, I, I would... 
I mean, I spent 12 years. <laughs> so I'm sitting there watching these students over the years and started to see that there was this contingent of students that had all the right answers and that they were good kids hanging in the good, right groups, <laughs> behaving. Um, but I didn't see fruit. I, I didn't see what the Bible defines as, as, as the fruit of, of a believer. And I also really didn't see an interest in fruit. I, I saw an interest in doing the right thing, and I definitely saw all the right answers. And it, 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 it was very, it was difficult to approach that, you know? Especially um, when they also had a testimony of when they were in first grade and they prayed for Jesus to come into their heart, you know? So it's like they have that. And so, you know, do you, do you go up to somebody and be like, eh, no, I don't think you are. I don't think you are, in fact, a believer. Um, and so, you know, I was looking at this and I was like, how do you, this is dangerous. This is dangerous if you've got this contingent of people who are not <coughs> showing an interest in, in, in godly pursuits, rather an interest in being in the part of the Christian subculture um, and, and doing the right things. And they know that they shouldn't be doing certain things. And they're not disappointing mom and dad. Um, and so what was my role you know, as a, as a youth pastor? And I started realizing that I need to be really careful here. I need to be really careful to not teach and interact with all of these students in such a way as to lead them to continue assuming that they are, in fact, Christians if they're not. Now, that doesn't mean that I need to go around and saying, I just don't think you're a Christian. <laughs> you know, I mean, I didn't say that. But to teach in such a way that I was trying to push students to really question, in fact, do I believe this honestly? Not what mom and dad believe, not what my school teaches me, not what my church says, not what my upbringing says, but have I committed and submitted my heart and my soul to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? And then let that be the engine that pushes my Christian life. Does that make sense? And so, you know, after several years of ministry, I started shifting my approach to teaching students in such a way that I tried to make sure that nobody could simply assume that they were on that train that gets into heaven, but that they had to look at themselves first and see, what do I actually believe? And I cannot get into heaven if this isn't my specific decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, if that's not the case, then you are not, in fact, a believer. Which I think for a student or an adult to live their life under the assumption that they are a believer and then to get to the end of their life and to die and to go before God and, and for the God of all creation to say, just because you said my name, you say, Lord, Lord, I don't know you. That, that is, to me, that, that is worse than living your life like a hellion, you know, doing really whatever you want to do, and then almost not being surprised when the final judgment seat comes. And I'm being a little facetious there, but you know what I'm saying? Um, 
There is a an ancient, well, let me rephrase. There's a an ancient Hebrew biblical understanding of the concept of belief that says you do not believe something if you don't then act it out. That you, you must have a, a cognitive understanding, uh, but it always must then show itself out in the way that you act and behave. That makes sense? There's, so there's two pieces. You must um, both understand, but you also must, in the truest way, in the truest sense possible, do it. If, if you don't do, then you don't believe. That's part of the definition in the Hebrew culture of, of belief, which is different in our culture. Because the story that I just said about student ministry was, you know, every kid in my Sunday school class down the hallway here, I'm sure, would say, I believe, you know? And dogmatically, like, I believe, of course I believe. Why wouldn't I believe? I haven't believed anything else. You know, I would talk to students, and I would ask them, hey, what's your story? What's your testimony? Is there a time when you came to know Jesus? And I'd have some students be like, well, I've always believed. The Bible says that, and I would unpack, I would unpack this, you know, that, that we start off broken, that we start off sinners, and that the nature of the gospel is that you have, that you have changed, that the, the gospel demands change, and if you haven't changed, if you see yourself in a, an always situation, then, then you're not a believer, you know, and, and I would unpack that, and, and really, I believe, saw students come to know Jesus because of them working through those, those decisions. And so it's easy in our 2014 culture to, to claim belief, like, of course I believe that G there was a guy named Jesus. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm a Baptist. Of course, believe, believe, believe. But if there isn't a doing, and I hope that we all understand here that this doing is more than just uh, morality or, or behavior, but actually doing the things that the Bible has called the believer to do in the pursuit of a righteous, holy life as a result of what Christ has done for us on the cross— if this is absent, then you cannot claim this. You can't. You, you cannot. The difficulty that we see in um, the parables, or parables, the Pharisees, is that the Pharisees uh, would do all that they could to be doers so that they could show their belief. But, but they didn't get the point of the commands that Jesus Christ and the God of the Old Testament had given. Um, before we look at Ephesians, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 19. If you would, please flip there with me. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 to 22. Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Um, let me get somebody to read that, please. Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Hannah, would you... Let's give everybody just a moment to find it. Matthew 16, Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Out loud. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, 
keep the commandments. They said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. <coughs> the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is a rich young ruler. Probably a lot of us have heard this story before. The rich young ruler was doing, he was doing, you know? Obey the commandments, Jesus said. And he said, oh, sweet, I have. But what else must I do? And Jesus said, you must give yourself away. You, you, must, you must give all of your identity away. You, you must redefine yourself in me first. And he was a rich young man. And he said, I, that I can't give. So he didn't, he didn't under, he was doing, but he didn't understand the call of Jesus. And he went away sorrowful. He, he went away not a believer. 1 John 4.20. Let's flip there. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. Can I get somebody to read that, please? 1 John, into the Old Testament. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. 1 John 4, 20 and 21. BG. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. This verse is telling us that, there, that it's possible for some people to say, Hey, I, I love God. You know, I am his. I am a believer. But yet if he doesn't do the things that scripture has called us to do, then it actually calls him a liar. Well, what is he lying about? He's lying about loving God. That, he, that, 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 there, that there's this, this indisputed, welded together truth that if you believe, we're talking about saving faith here, if you believe in Jesus Christ and what his work, and in the work that he's done on the cross, then it is not only going to be a cognitive understanding of that, but it will show itself out. And that is what, in fact, equals belief. So with that as a beginning point, I want us to jump into Ephesians 4.17. Um, it's important for us to see, because Paul is a trained Pharisee. Paul's the author here. Um, he knew the law, and he's writing to the Ephesians, who are Christians, who are in fact believers, but they are Gentiles. They're clearly living in the culture. Um, they are in, and he's speaking to them with this definition of understanding and belief in mind. Ephesians 4, I'm going to read 17 to 24, and later we're going to finish out the chapter, but for now, just 17 to 24. Again, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, speaking to Christians, believers, who are in the city of Ephesus. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer... Walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, 
greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is beginning here, uh, if we look back at, at, at verse 17, Paul is beginning here by saying, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Um, Paul was a Pharisee who was condemning to death Christians before he came to know Christ. He came to, he came to know Christ in a pretty miraculous way. And uh, Jesus himself actually appeared to him and said, "What, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He came to faith, and Jesus Christ himself uh, commanded Paul to go and become an apostle to the Gentiles specifically. So Paul is not speaking from just his own um, conversion, though he is speaking from his own conversion. But Paul is speaking really for the Lord Jesus. That's why it says, I testify really on behalf of Jesus. Like, I'm speaking for the Lord that it says. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, who's he speaking to? He's speaking to Gentiles. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know I, 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 but he's a Jew. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, last week when we talked about Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 1, um, he says, um, Now you must walk in a, in, a, in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. So, this statement here in Ephesians chapter 4 17 is really a follow up from 1 through 16. So, 1 through 16 is, Hey, walk this way in a manner worthy of the calling. And he's kind of switching directions and, and he's saying, No longer walk in the way of the Gentiles. He's speaking with authority, he's speaking for the Lord Jesus. And he's speaking because he himself has had uh, the experience of the light being turned on so that he can see the truth of the gospel. Um, the hard part for me in this text um, is, the, is, is the description of the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles here are speaking really exclusively of really those who don't believe. Those who are not Christ followers. Those who don't believe. Okay? And the, 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 the description is rather damning. <laughs> um, it says in verse 17, You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's, I mean, calling somebody futile. You know, is a little insulting. I mean, he's not speaking to Gentiles here, but um, okay. In the futility of their minds, verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, if this is all I had to go on, for the city of Ephesus, doesn't it sound like 
that the city of Ephesus is filled with a bunch of dirty, nasty, perverted, oversexed, grimy sloths. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, do you know people like that? I hope not. <laughs> uh, you, I read this, and I, I, I read the description of somebody who's not a believer, and I think of the context of those that are around me that are not believers, and they don't look the same. You know? Uh, dark, you know, futility in their minds, darkening their understanding, alienated from the life of God, ignorance, hardness of heart, callous, giving themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of... Like, so I don't really see that. You know, I, I work at a church. So my coworkers don't fit into that category. <laughs> Thank, thankfully. Um, <laughs> this week, uh, this week, I... Um, I served on a jury. I got called for jury duty. And I, it was, I got picked. The guy's innocent. We declared him innocent on Friday. We went through Monday all day, Tuesday all day, Wednesday all day, Thursday all day, and most of the day on Friday listening to this court case. And so I got stuck in a jury room every day for hours at a time while the lawyers and the judge were getting ready to take away your phone, you know, and uh, you're not allowed to talk about the case at all until until you're given permission to deliberate. So I'm sitting in this room, there's 13 of us, 12 jurors and one alternate, and you just got, you're just shooting the breeze. And I haven't, I haven't specifically been around, around a group of strangers for that prolonged period of time um, in, 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 in memory, you know? All week. <laughs> um, and it wasn't just sitting there listening, we were in that room for hours you know, pockets of hours throughout the course of the week. And I tell you what, most of them, just through conversation, um, as much as I can tell, I don't think we're believers, but they were nice folks, you know? Very courteous, enjoyable to talk to, um, genuine, not the way uh, Gentiles or non-believers are described here. And so I, I just, I struggle with how, how do you make sense of this? Because I don't think that the average person in Ephesus was that, that type of dirty person that this kind of begins to describe. Does that make sense? So where do you go with this? In verse 17, um, it, it speaks of the futility of their minds. Um, All through the New Testament, um, those who are believers are referenced, the example is used as, as somebody who has had the light turned on. You know what I mean? That the Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, before he was a believer, was blind. He was blind to the truth. And then he had the light turned on to where he got it. We've seen that, we've seen that example um, illustrated throughout even, even Ephesians. Um, but there's a darkness for those who don't understand, and there is a light that is a result of the Holy Spirit flipping that light on. And that was my concern for students in the student ministry who had all of the knowledge, but the light hadn't been flipped on, so there wasn't an interest. Now, if, here's a silly example. If I were to charge 
you to go find something for me. Um, Ryan, would you go find something for me? Go. You'd be like, what do you need? <laughs> you need your telephone charger, you need an ink pen, um, and we go find, and if, I, if I left it undefined, just simply go find something for me. Go, come on, let's go, chop, chop, go. You know, Ryan would probably be like, but I need to know, go. <laughs> but I don't know the information, go. I, I find it, please, I need it, I need it, I need it. Like, his efforts would be futile, wouldn't they? Because, I mean, where do you go with that? I mean, he could go wander. He could go to my office and dig around. He could find my car and look in the center console. He could go to my house. But, I mean, if, 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 if the light has not been turned on, if, if he has not been made aware of the truth, then the things that he, he can be a good guy, he can be a genuine guy, he could be a moral guy. And so this is speaking nothing of his character, but his efforts would be a waste, right? And that's the manner that this is speaking in here. That for, for Gentiles whom, who don't believe, whom the light hasn't been turned on, then the, the, the futility of their mind is, is that. That, that, there, that there isn't, you know, where are you going? What, what are you looking for? You're just searching, you're running, and you're not, and the thing is, is he's not going to find it. So it's futile. It goes on in verse 18, it says, uh, they are, in verse four, chapter 4, verse 18, that they are darkened in their understanding, that the light has not been turned on, like we're talking about here. The second part of verse 18 says that they are alienated from the life of God, meaning that they do not have the life that God gives, that, 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 that they are not, uh, they're not from the land of God, if you will which is just an illustration, but they, are not, they do not have the spiritual life, and therefore they have the earthly life, which is the life of death. It says in the, in the last part of verse 18 um, that they're ignorant. Ignorance due to the hardness of their heart. And then in the beginning of verse 19, it says that they've been callous. Um, Flip to the Old Testament, if you would. Ezekiel, chapter 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, 25. Again, the word ignorance is pretty harsh. <laughs> um, nobody, you, you cannot use ignorance in, in a flattering way if you're describing somebody. It is not a good thing. It is, it's pretty offensive. Um, but like I said, I did jury duty this week. Um, I have no legal training. Um, several years ago, I sat on a, I don't know what they call it, but it was some sort of abbreviated jury where it just took a couple hours. There was only six of us. They boom, 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 boom. We, we dismissed. Like this week for me was, well, uh, it was enlightening. <laughs> like I saw for the first time the details of the legal system, uh, how it works, that it's nothing like Judge Judy, um, and it's it's pretty laborious, um, and I was I was really fascinated with the rules that the uh, that the, that the lawyers must abide by, and, and seeing the judge calling them out, you know, like 
you know, um, I object, Your Honor. Like, that happened, I, I think it was in the hundreds of times over the course of the week. Um, and then they would explain themselves why. And it was interesting, but, but I can legitimately say that I was ignorant of the legal system. I, I just, I, I wasn't exposed. I had never seen it before. Um, so when it says that they're ignorant, it, it means that they, they, they don't have the understanding. Light has not been flipped on for them to get the, the, the information that they need. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel was a prophet, uh, really a, an Old Testament apostle. An apostle, like the Apostle Paul, was somebody who spoke for God. That when we see the apostles' words in our Bible, we know that they are the words of God. And it's the same from, as the prophets in the Old Testament, that they were speaking for God Almighty. That the words that came from the prophet were words that came from God. That's why all through the Old Testament, they caution against looking for false prophets. Not because they were giving faulty information, but they were claiming that they were God's mouthpiece. And if they were not, and you were listening to them, and you were doing the things that they said, then you could be judged for it. You know, that's why the false, you know, you, you watch out for the false prophets and the false teachers. So Ezekiel was a prophet, and he was speaking out against the nation of Israel, who was living a completely debased and sinful lifestyle, almost entirely as a nation. So Ezekiel was speaking the truth from God that they needed to repent and turn and come back. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. This is Ezekiel speaking the words of God. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. This is God doing the work on the nation of Israel. Verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, a spirit of understanding. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I, God, will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your, your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. That the process of believing in Jesus Christ, or in this context, the process of actually believing in your God, involved that God turning on, your, on, turning on the lights of your heart, removing your natural heart of stone, and replacing it with a heart of flesh, as it says. And I will put my spirit within you, it says, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. How does this text begin? I testify and I say in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, that we are called to walk in a different way if the lights have been turned on in our life. So all these verses are saying is that it really makes sense that the Gentiles, if they don't have an understanding of the gospel, that they're not living in a way that they ought to. And they're not living in the way of, of Christ. Now this section ends in verse 19. Let's look at that. Ephesians 4.19. It says that they have become callous and they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, 
greedy to practice every kind of impurity. A life that is not lived in and for and by the truth is going to end up messed up. A life that is lived, that is not lived in the truth, by the truth, and for the truth of the gospel is going to end up messed up, is what this is saying. Uh, flip with me to the, the first chapter of, of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Probably one of the most well-known texts after John 3.16, Psalm 23. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's how this starts. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, this truth, this enlightened truth, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed or enlightened to you, the righteousness of God, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Look back up on the board here. The righteous shall live by faith. If you believe, if, if, if the truth has been enlightened to you, you will live by faith. You will do. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth or the light. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they, men, are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, meaning they were aware of God, they understood the idea that there is a God, there is a higher being, there is a set of morality out there. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks to him. They did not do. But, rather, they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. You see the connection here? Their thinking was wrong. And their hearts were darkened. Verse 22, they claimed to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. The result of that is that you will do really what you want to do. The lusts of your hearts and to impurity. Jump down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to what, not, to what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, adventurers of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They knew, though they know God's decree, in those who practice such things, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is quite a list of sins that people are given up to who have a futile mind. 
But in this list of things are really bad things like envy, murder, and strife, but also things like gossip and disobeying your parents. That, that, that the trajectory of a life that has not been enlightened is going to end up in, in a debased life. That, that, you know, if I ask Ryan to go find something for me, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end up lost. And, and that lostness is the same concept that Scripture identifies as, as being damned. That, that you're lost. You're without the truth. Now, I wanted to kind of go through all this because the folks that sat in my jury were really nice folks. And I think that because our culture has kind of redefined this, that you can, you can believe and have an understanding but not necessarily show it and live it out, um, that we kind of categorize people as kind of good people um, and maybe they need Christ. And I think that there's an urgency to the gospel. Not that we look down God forbid. Because we were all Gentiles too in this context, you know? We can't, we can't look at people and say, look how much better we are than you. You're the one who's ignorant. You're the one who has a cow's heart. You're the one that has a heart of stone. No. I mean, I mean that is, is a direct contradiction. But that we, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, have been saved by grace and, and, and through faith alone. And that, and that we... We really have to look at the people that are in our lives that are not Christ followers as being in a bad place. Even if they're kind and joyful to be around. Does that make sense? That, that, that there is a danger in their life looming over them. Even if they're intelligent and, 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 and moral and, and giving and, and more polite than Christians that you know, that, that, that there is an urgency to the gospel. Because if the Holy Spirit is not present in their heart and mind, and if they have not been enlightened to the gospel, then the path of their life is going to take them to, to greater and greater places of sin, and at the final judgment seat, will take them to hell. That needs to be present in our minds as we're simply living our lives. Paul then switches direction, verse 20. Don't walk as the Gentiles do, verse 20. It says, that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deep, deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, in verse 20 it says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 20 does not say, but that is not the way that you learned about Christ. It doesn't say, but that is not the way that you learned the doctrines of Christ. That is not the way, verse 20 does not say, but that is not the way that you learned um, the teachings of Christ. 
It's the way that you learn Christ. That to know Christ is to know him personally. Not just his books, not just his teachings, but that there is a person, I mean, you heard the lingo all the time if you've, been, if you've gone to church much. You know, a, a personal walk with Jesus. That, you know, that Jesus lives in you. That it's not you uh, working through a priest to get to Jesus. It's not you uh, abiding by a bunch of rules to make sure that God in heaven with the lightning finger doesn't strike you. But that there is a personal closeness as a result of what Christ, that Christ came on this earth as a man and died that opened the doors for us to have a personal personal relationship with God. I remember when I came to know Jesus as my Savior, one of the things that was, because I, I was a teenager, and I had, had had all this you know Christian upbringing, and one of the things that I remember thinking about was if God is all-knowing, and Jesus Christ is God, and I, I remember thinking, I wonder if when Jesus was hanging on the cross in agony, dying for the sins of mankind, if he is all-knowing, and he knew that in 1978 there was going to be a little boy born named Daniel David Beach, I wonder if he was thinking my name when he was dying. You know? Like, I wonder if he was hanging in there thinking, I'm dying. So Danny could be saved. You know? I'm dying. So Lauren, Elliot Beach, can be saved. I'm, I'm dying so that him can be saved. You know, I'm, 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 do, I'm, do, I'm taking on the sins of BG so that he can be saved. That's personal. There's no verse, but I think that he was. You know? I don't think it was this, this blanket statement that he made on the cross. It was a personal statement he made on the cross. Verse 20, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. The ways of the Gentiles. Verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him, the NIV says, surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. And it's not simply saying in verse 21, Surely you have heard about him like, hey, you're, you're familiar with his teachings. Rather, this type of hearing is the, you heard and you understand and you do. Let me read you a verse in Matthew chapter 11. This is the words of Jesus. It says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, meaning all men and women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Speak, saying that there is a prophet coming called John the Baptist, and he has come at this point proclaiming the coming of Jesus, speaking to the Jews in his day. Verse 12 says that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied up until John the Baptist, meaning it was the end of an era. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah, or he is the prophet that was prophesied to come before Jesus. Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is not saying, just take in this information. He said, hey, 
Those of you who would believe this, believe it. This is the prophesied one. Those who have ears to hear. So in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 21, it says, Assuming that you have heard about him, assuming that you have understood this, and believe this in the Hebrew understanding of belief, and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Verse 22, put off your old self. Put off the ways of, of your former life as Gentiles, which belongs to your former, man, your former manner of life. And it is corrupt through deceitful desires. You know what a desire is? It's something you legitimately want to do. Yeah? Um... Since I grew up in a real Christian-y background, you know, it was always really understood for me that drinking was bad. You know, that's what the bad people do. Bad kids. And I remember my first, one of my first experiences, long story, at a party and there was a lot of alcohol. And I wanted it. And I was shocked at myself because I was like, that's the, the I, I know, it's, that's what the bad people do. And I remember specifically thinking, it looks like they're having a great time. And I want that. I remember walking down some alley in Slovakia on a missions trip, and there was pornography all over the ground. And I remember looking down, and I saw it, and I remember walking and thinking, I'm on a missions trip. I, re I really want to go back and pick that up. I, I wanted it. It was a desire, you know? It was a deceitful desire. So a, a deceitful desire is not some sin that you're not struggling with. A deceitful desire is something that you, as speaking to Christians, legitimately want to do that is a part of your old nature. And we all have them. That there are things in our heart of hearts. I, I, I want that. I know it's bad. I understand that it's bad. Put off. Why is Paul telling them this? They're believers. Because they need to be told again. Because the nature, the nature of pursuing Jesus Christ is a nature of perseverance, steadfastness, and continuing on. Flip to James chapter 1, please. James chapter 1, verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it, again, this is speaking to believers, Christians. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And these trials can be deceitful desires, which try you, or it can maybe be persecutions of some sort. Verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith, what am I going to do in this alley right now? Testing my faith. What am I going to do in the face of all these people who look like they're having a great time and I want to participate? The testing of your faith. It develops perseverance, 
says the NIV, or steadfastness in the ESV. Verse 4, perseverance, meaning continuing on, steadfastness, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That the life of the believer is intrinsically tied to perseverance, to continuing on, to, to steadfastness, to keep on going back to the truths that you've claimed, to keep on going back to the, 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 the ideology of a pursuit of Jesus Christ and keep going back and combating your old self because you still have deceitful desires. And keep going back to the things that you claim you believe and saying, why do I do these things that I do? How does this affect the way that I live? Not just as routine, not just as a rote practice. Oh, I shouldn't use curse words. But, but why do I do these things? Because I am a new man, that I have a new self, that I have a new life. That while I'm on this earth, it's going to be at battle with my old Gentile ways. And the old Gentile ways have a futile mind, and they're dark, and they're alienated from life, and they're ignorant because of a hard heart. And I, if I am a Christian, need to keep going back as I persevere in steadfastness, and perseverance and continuing on so that I can be, what does it say in, in James? Mature, complete, not lacking, which is what I want. But I, I don't, the, you know, the Holy Spirit flipping on the light of understanding in your mind happens instantaneously. But this perseverance of finishing its work so that you may be mature, complete, and lack nothing does not happen instantaneously. It is the process of the life of a Christian. That is what happens in the life of a Christian. That you continue. That you, you battle. And when you, and when you fall, you stand back up and you go back to the truth of the gospel. And you continue on by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is committing and charging these believers to do. Don't live the ways that you used to, but battle them. We need to be told this. We need to be reminded of this. I need to be told this. That, that there are people around me that are living with a different mind than mine. And it's not my own doing, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit through me. And that not only that, but I must continue continuing on. I must. That is what marks the believer. is perseverance. Now, the second part of Ephesians 4 is really, what are some ways that this actually physically looks like? And it just goes through this list of things that, that, that say this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like for people who actually believe. It says this in Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Meaning that we need truth speak, spoken to us. That you are a part of the body of Christ. And you need to be a truth speaker. Which sometimes steps on people's toes. But we have deceitful desires. We need other people within the body of Christ speaking truth to us. And you need to be that person. You need it spoken to you. And you need to be a truth speaker to others in the body of Christ. Verse 26 it says, Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And give no opportunity for the devil. But there are times in life when we do get upset. 
when we do get angry. But we must resolve it quickly. It says before the sun goes down. Give no opportunity. Because when you sleep on it, man, when I sleep on it, I brew. It's worse. Verse 28. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We are supposed to be giving. This is a verse, I believe, that really speaks more to giving than to not stealing. The body gives. The body gives. The body gives. We give to each other. We give to the work of the gospel. We give to missions. We give to those in need. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. I think it's an incredible thing to think that we, those of us that are Christians in the body of Christ, are God's agents of grace. God works most through the natural means. He's a supernatural God, and he can do supernatural things, and he can supernaturally encourage you, but how often is it that there's another brother and sister in Christ who participates in the spiritual encouragement of your own soul? Have you ever had that before? I think it happens more often that way, that we are agents of grace, that we are used by God for the sake of growing his own body, and it happens most through us and through speaking the truth. Verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That we are to be Christ-like to each other in the body where they don't deserve it because people who need our forgiveness means that it's people who were wrong. And the thing is, is that forgiveness is something that you need to do, not something they need to seek. That part of being the believer is a life of steadfastness and pursuit and perseverance and fighting our old nature, putting on the new, because we've been changed by the gospel. That we have the lights flipped on for those of us that accepted Christ as our Savior.